Hello and welcome to Birdcast, a podcast looking at the work of writer Nigel Neal. This week, we chat with writer Stephen Volk, best known for Ghostwatch. Along the way, we discuss why people tend to look down their nose at genre pieces, the noble history of the ghost story, how Nigel Neal's The Stone Tape changed his life, and the difference between horror in the cinema versus horror at home. And perhaps most importantly of all, what it's like, like Nigel Neal, to be part of the historical lineage of ghost stories. Stephen Volk, welcome to Birdcast. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's an absolute great pleasure. We're really, really, really looking forward to it. Really? So um, we'll see how far we can go before we before we don't mention the, the the obvious influences that we might talk about in your in, in in your career. But could you open by giving us your first memories of encounter, encountering the works of Nigel Neal? Well, I was thinking about this, knowing that that we were going to be chatting about it, and I think the first actual thing by Nigel Neal that I went to see would be Quite a Mess in the Pit, which I was trying to think what date is it? Would it be 1967? The film, yeah. Not far from that, anyway. Yeah. So I would have been 12 or 13, um, and I would have gone to see it at my local cinema in Pontypridd in South Wales, probably the White Palace, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, so I would have actually, I don't know, was it an a, an a film or was it an X film when it came out? Anyway, I, I don't think I got in on false pretenses. I think well, I, there's a there's a story in that because um, uh, Hammer insisted on an X certificate, um, um, but the BBFC said there's not actually because it, 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 it's one of those instances where there's no real blood. Yeah or obvious ones and that as well. It's so they, just the, yeah, disturbing so they, idea, isn't it? Really? Which wasn't really well served by the criteria yeah. of the... Yeah. So they insisted, it was one of the few occasions where the BBFC were... were um, lobbied to uh, to put the certificate up rather than rather than down because yeah. no one got It's strange because it does stick in my mind. I mean, my my two favourite Hammer films were Quatermass and the Pit. Even though, as you probably know, I'm a huge fan of Peter Cushing. My two my two favourite Hammer films are um, uh, The Devil Rides Out and Quatermass and the Pit. Neither of which are Peter Cushing in them, which is crazy, um, and neither of which are Frankenstein or Dracula, which is also crazy. Um, but what 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 um, prefigured that actually was that I never saw Quater Mass on TV. I was slightly too young to have seen it when it went right. out in the in the fifties. Um, but I do remember my dad saying to me, and I think I think my parents called the character Quater Quatermass. I don't know why, but they called him Quatermass. But the um, kind of reputation that they passed down to me. And it's kind of like forbidden fruit, fruit, like a lot of things in horror, which you get a kind of idea of before you ever get to see it. Like um, Famous Monsters of Filmland. They used to voraciously kind of read Famous Monsters of Filmland, see black and white stills of films that I was unable to see because they were extras and they probably weren't even released here. And it, your imagination goes wild. And, and so it was with the idea of Quatermass and people, it's scaring people. And, you know, people... Um, you know, empty. My, I remember vividly my dad saying that it emptied the pubs. People didn't go to the pub on the night that Quatermass was on, you know. So all this was kind of bubbling up culturally in the back of my mind before I saw Quatermass in the pit. And of course, um, I think when you an analyze a lot of writers or artists' formative experiences, it's around the age of 11 or 12 where something happened that you really sets off your imagination or or just is a key to what you do later somehow and it, it's almost like something happens at that time i think 
that you try and recapture the excitement of, uh, whether it be visual art, whether it be cinema, whether it be TV or writing or a novel you read. And it's kind of like the whole of life is spent to try and get or create that feeling you had from that one thing. Um, yes. And I don't think we consciously do that. I think it just works on, a, on us at a kind of primal level when we've got hormones raging and we're trying to find our way in life and we're trying to think about the world. And these things come along that are kind of, I don't know, they're almost like big attacks almost on us that really kind of hit us in the head, you know? And I think for me, um, it's a mixture of other things, but it was this mixture, which I'm sure you've heard a million times, of science and the supernatural, because I grew up loving Poe books of horror stories, the Pan books of horror stories, science fiction masters like Isaac Asimov and, and these kind of things and Ray Bradbury. But also I loved, you know, I was getting into kind of nonfiction about the supernatural, people who investigated the supernatural, like Society for Psychical Research or Harry Houdini or Arthur Conan Doyle, or, you know, there was, um, you know, the great rational Sherlock Holmes facing the demonic Hound of the Baskervilles. I think this is kind of straight line from Sherlock Holmes trying to rationalize the Hound of the Baskervilles to Quatermass confronting pagan forces and trying to make sense of them. It's this clash between something that is, you know, in, uh, the intelligence of, of, of the human being against something that's kind of inexplicable and trying to figure something out, try to think your way out of a problem that might not be thinkable out of. Uh, so this was kind of working away. And also, you know, another real formative thing for me at the time was um, the Richard Matheson book, I Am Legend. And there was a certain common thing between that and Nigel Leo for me, which was uh, taking something from folklore, like uh, in Quatermass in the Pit, it was kind of gargoyles, demons, you know, these, what did they come from? What were they? What if, what if they came from Martians? What if Martians came here and the vestigial memory created these things that are now on churches you know that kind of that kind of idea which which um is so delicious and similarly with i am legend you know what if instead of there being a human race and one vampire the whole you know it was lots of vampires and one human you know and what if that one human has to figure out what is what is scientifically going on with the vampires so it's kind of science is work trying to work out something supernatural so science trying to work out something supernatural was, was to me always a kind of delicious combination because it was kind of, it was both exciting and kind of futile. I sort of knew it was kind of futile kind of thing because you can't explain the inexplicable. It's a, it's a right. tautology, you know, but in dramatic terms, in terms of telling a story, it was really became irresistible for me, you know. And so, you know, Richard Matheson, Robert Bloch, um, you know, they both wrote Scream and they both wrote books. So I kind of aspired to want to do what they did. But also there was Nigel Neal. And that was he was a very special voice, I think, because he was a British person that was doing that. So it kind of 1967, you know, I was kind of doodling around with the idea of writing my early teens, you know, and one has dreams and that kind of thing. So that he kind of opened that kind of like that door, just a crack to the possibility of being a TV writer and writing those things that excited me. So that was that was the first formative influence in a way. Having seen um, Quatermass in the Pit, were you aware uh, when you saw later Nigel Neal works that you were that you were watching the same work of the same the same writer? Oh definitely there was yeah. a kind of authorial voice that I really respected from the get-go I think. Um, I just sensed kind of that there was someone there. Yeah I mean a lot a lot of as screenwriting doesn't necessarily have an authorial voice, but every, everything that he did seemed to have some thread going through it, you know? 
Um, and I guess, apart from the originality of the, just plain originality of the ideas, you know, I mean, just the lovely terms that he put on things. I mean, later, for instance, seeing um, The Abominable Snowman, which I must have seen on TV, but much later, I think, really. You know, the way he plays that like a, a horror film, really, kind of like Alien in that you never see it. You know, so structurally, it's a little like Alien. But then, but then that marvellous kind of coup de theatre in a way where, it, where the thing that you fear becomes a kind of transcendent, a kind of transgressive, transcendent being. And I kind of think there's a parallel there almost with what Spielberg did in his Close Encounters, which is he has the, the fun of doing the fearful, the child with the, the um, otherworldly um, alien kind of creating all these fearful things. And then gradually through the, the film, he, he kind of shows them as the focus of potential kind of enlightenment. And in a way, I think just that idea of, of you know, something being fearful and then kind of pulling the rug and saying something that you're terrified of might turn out to be just something we don't understand you know and I thought that was absolutely brilliant but you know and I could sense that these kind of ideas were kind of you know people always look down their nose at genre pieces as not having depth and and of being formulaic and this kind of thing so I really coveted the kind of the nous and the skill of Nigel Neal in pulling off the big ideas, these really thrilling turns in genre, you know, and using it to make you think as well as making you feel. I mean, there's a number of things that I think, there's the originality of the ideas, there's a kind of multi-layered depth in everything that he does. There's a thematic brilliance, which is often to me a fundamental tug of war between a kind of gleaming new future and a kind of lingering mysterious gloom of the past. And I think they're always populated by great characters, great dialogue, which elevates it immediately from being a kind of B-movie. And there's always wit there, as well as the seriousness of intent. So there's a seriousness of intent, and it's almost disguised by a flight of foot kind of amusement in the, in the way he has characters communicate, which, which I think I, I, I really enjoyed moving on, if I could, to the stone tape, which I think was Christmas Day, 1972, it was, yes. And it, th this is the one that really changed my life, I think. I was always drawn to horror, science fiction, fantasy. And I guess I got to the stage, which is maybe late teens, where I knew what I was enjoying reading and watching, going to the cinema and seeing. But I was actually asking myself, is this a serious pursuit for a, a writer that wants to be a professional writer? <laughs> Would I be, you know, am I, am I backing the wrong horse here? Should I be thinking about a different genre? you know, since people seem to be just so disparaging of it. Um, and Nigel Neal, quite honestly, in the stone tape, made me think, hang on, this is not a genre to be ashamed of. The, you know, the ghost story has a long precedent, a long history. It's a noble history. All the best English writers have written in it. But I think he persuaded me, you know, in terms of TV writing, don't shy away from it if you're drawn to that kind of subject. Just do it bloody well because that's what he did. He did it bloody well and took it seriously. Um, but he ploughed that furrow that was his particular interest and just did it better and better and better, you know, um, as he went along really, kept coming back to it. And, um, and that, was, that was my instruction really from seeing the stone tape. I think he'd probably be um, among the first to say that he, he didn't necessarily want to see or didn't see himself as a genre writer and, and would, and would curl, curl his nose yeah. up at, yeah, at sci-fi or, or, or horror. But 
all the best sci-fi and horror is is often character-based drama in a, a you know in, in an extreme in an ex ex extreme situation. It's quite unfortunate yeah. that, isn't it? Because I think he became quite um, abrasive towards people that were genuine fans. I don't think he liked the fans, and I think, as you as you know, he did a TV series that ridiculed the fans really, which I think they were understandably not too pleased about. Um, <laughs> We've but, yet to do a podcast on that one. Yeah, we, it will be. It will, it will be coming up. I haven't been able to yeah, bring yeah. myself to watch King, it. Yeah, King Big, just yeah, King Big, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure they do know it. Yeah. This, but um, it's a shame that he took a long time to um, realise that people were genuinely affectionate towards what he'd done in, in the genre. And maybe he thought short change that he got trapped in it a little. I mean, it's a very complicated kind of relationship really I, I suppose when you maybe want to do other things uh and, and he become uh, it's a little like typecasting probably for an actor in mm. that he was known as the quaker mass man and he probably wanted to do lots of other things yes things like his 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 adaptations of woodfall or film first two woodfall films or you know uh, yeah jane Eyre. Uh, that he was known as an incredibly skillful adapter because he was really good. He was he was really good at getting across information on, via via dialogue. He's brilliant, brilliant di dialogue writer. Uh, and you know, even at the end, he was he was adapting what you know Bernard Cornwell, sharp, sharp, sharp yeah. stories. But yeah, yeah, he'll, he'll never lose. And the woman in black, of course. Yes, although that's probably um, that that firmly puts him in back oh, in yeah, the, genre, the, the, the genre, the genre, the genre category as his last. Probably known as his as as, as 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 his last great work, but I think it was Mark Gatiss that said that's the reason he isn't in the same breath as Potter, as as Rosenthal, as, as those writers. Um, yeah, he was every every bit their equal at all, but because there's the snobbishness about genre, about science fiction, about horror, um, that people will always treat it as something about ideas or atmosphere over characterization, uh, and um, that's altogether something that always always frustrates me because it always always misses the point that horror is often about i think there's a long-standing thing i think with with british television in particular which is that i always say that um you know they have huge kind of decades where they go off science fiction and then you know and then there's one thing and then they go off it again for like 10 years yeah um but um uh, i i always think the problem is that if you have a social realist drama and it's not very good, you can still hold your head up high and go to the BBC um, club at the end of the day and have your gin and tonic, and it's not embarrassing. Whereas if you do something uh, imaginative and it risks failing and the production values are not quite as good as you wanted them to be, and it, then you go to the BBC club for your gin and tonic and everyone's kind of looking the other way because it's embarrassing. No, no social realist play for today is embarrassing. It's, it can't be embarrassing because it's realism, but imaginative fiction can be embarrassing if it fails, and that's mm. and that's what that's that's what I think is at the fundamental core of the establishment want, not wanting to do these things. They don't like to be embarrassed. <laughs> but your formative experiences of working or uh, have on well, did, 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 did film? You were pretty much in at the deep end with uh, with Gothic, weren't you? Because am I right? You started as a, an advertising copywriter. That's right. Is yeah. That right. Yeah. Um, I remember researching stuff for John Bowen, who did. Uh, he also, uh, but he went straight oh, right. into to, 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 to TV from that. From, yeah. He had, had from that as well. Um, but you know, it's you know, it's it's a long way from people making lots of lots of short films trying to get their trying to get their name known when you're there working with 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 Ken, with Ken Russell. Um, 
I, in a sort of roundabout way, I also want to explore how you sort of approach those things about Im 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 imaginative fiction. But what was the starting point for for you coming onto that project and then being able to say what you wanted to do with the script or what Ken's vision was um, for the script? Well, it's quite simple, really. I, I I just I just wrote it. It wasn't I wasn't commissioned to write it. There was no director attached to it. And I was writing all sorts at that time in the in the in the late seventies, I guess. I was like trying to write radio plays or fragments of books or short stories, trying to get anything around. And an agent told me once that, uh, oh, you're doing too many different things. What do you really want to do? You know, and kind of put me on the spot and off, off the cuff. Um, I just said, well, films, really. If I have to do just one thing. And he said, well, just do that then. Just write screenplays and we'll do all the other stuff later. It was very, he was very specific about it. Um, so I thought, all right, I'll do a screenplay. And I, I, as I was working in advertising, I would, would burn the midnight oil and write scripts in, in the evening. It was as simple as that. And, um, um, I really got this idea for Gothic from a book called Heritage of Horror by David Perry, which is about the Hammer films. And um, the first uh, chapter or so of that was um, about the Villa Diodati and these characters that met there that summer and uh, the kind of whole uh, psychodrama of what was going on there. And as I was reading it, I thought, my God, why has nobody made a film of this? You know, it's kind of like five characters max in one house over one night where something absolutely extraordinary happened. Um, and nobody knows exactly what happened, but you know, you chuck these characters together and, and it kind of writes itself. I didn't mean it would be easy, but what I mean is the situation was ready, ready baked kind of thing. Oven, oven baked, as, uh, as uh, Boris Johnson said. Uh, no, um, Gary Lineker says oven baked, doesn't he? Anyway, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but you know what I mean. It was ready the first mention of both Boris Johnson and Gary Lineker. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well. Who were who, who not. There in, in the same breath. In the same breath. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, can, I can fully acknowledge David Perry because he's actually become a, a really good friend of mine. And yeah. I've told him as much that his book inspired it. And uh, at that stage, he hadn't seen it. He has seen, seen it since. But that was that was it, really. I just burnt Midnight Oil and wrote it as a script and and uh, got an agent, um, which was a long, involved process that would take a long time to explain, but eventually got an agent who sent it round and it ended up on the script of, on the desk of head of production at Virgin Films, who was our Clark. They were making absolute beginners, I think, at, at that stage, or right. I think they were, I think it might've been a co-production with Goldcrest, I can't remember exactly. But this was about the mid eighties. And um, I, could, I, I was working in advertising then waiting for the phone call from Al to say, we found a director for you. I had no idea. I didn't even have a short list of, of directors in my head. It was just they were sending around the script. And then all of a sudden I was I was at my desk with my art director who was sitting opposite me and the phone call came through and it was our clerk at Virgin Films saying, we've got a director for you, uh, Ken Russell. And I put the phone down and I said to my art director, so if you'd written a film, who would you least want to direct it? And he said, <laughs> he said Michael Winner. <laughs> and I said... Um, I said, second choice. He said, Ken Russell. <laughs> so actually, that was that was kind of, uh, you know, Ken had just been in America and done uh, Crimes of Passion and uh, Altered States and that kind of thing. So it was very much, I didn't know what I was going to get here. Was I going to get the genius that made The Devils? Or, or the, the guy, guy that made their Lair of the White Worm, Lacer Rod? Yeah, well, I didn't know that. But, yeah, but <laughs> would, would it be the guy that made Listomania? 
with uh, Roger Daughtry, you know, so it was... Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Um, but actually, he, uh, you know, we, we could end up talking about just that film. But um, he was he was terrific. And, and the great thing about... The, <laughs> if only it happened now. I mean, the great thing then was that he said, I'd like to make it. And what's more, I want to make it next May. And it was like November. There was no time for anyone to fart around. They had to just make it. Which is, was great. So we, you know, it was just a very quick um, development process, and he just he just kind of made it. You know, we didn't have enough money to go to Switzerland, needless to say. Um, so, so it was it was quite a well, not a baptism of fire because it wasn't uh, it wasn't not for me. I mean, I, w I wasn't terribly kind of involved, although I was I was happy to visit the set and that kind of thing and involved in watching it happen, which was marvelous. But it wasn't like the rigors of screenwriting that I've kind of enjoyed since, as you can imagine, it was quite a straightforward process. Um, but did it, the script, it, sorry, did the script change much between? It didn't uh, really. The one thing that? that did change was, um, which I kind of regret in a way, was <clears throat> my original script began with Mary Shelley on her deathbed, and she's kind of fading away, and she's remembering the events of 1816. So, and then it comes back to her at the end, and the idea is. At the end, the so-called creature visits her. At the end, and there's a kind of there's a kind of reconciliation with the creature she'd created. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think I, I think the problem with that for Ken was that that put it put the parenthesis around the idea that the whole film was Mary Shelley's fantasy or misremembering. Whereas um, I think Ken wanted it to be Ken Russell's fantasy, not anybody else's. <laughs> Uh, and but a real, my real regret is because it was Natasha Richardson. Wouldn't it have been great if Vanessa Redgrave? Yes, that would have been I mean, that would have been marvelous. How do you feel about um, Gothic in in retrospect now? What was your um, take at on the it? Time I was really um, kind of bamboozled by what to think of it because it was my first script, my first film to come in front of the cameras and be released, and um, it's a it's a sharp learning curve when you're a screenwriter to realize it's not going to be like it was in your head or even as it was on paper. So, so it was a very different beast on screen than I thought it would be um, in, in very, um, a great number of respects. Um, and I, I kind of, it took me decades, I think, to get used to the idea. It is what it is. And it became for good or ill, a, a Ken Russell film. Uh, and, I've kind of come to peace with the fact that that's for good rather than ill, um, and so be it. And if you don't like it, fuck it, doesn't matter really. And I actually saw it uh, for the first time in years up in Newcastle. Um, uh, Neil Snowden, who you know, who did the Nigel Neal book, put on a screening uh, as part of his kind of film festival that he does up there. And we and David Perry was with me up there actually, and we watched it together. And I kind of enjoyed it. I mean, I'd almost forgotten lots of it. And it was kind of like watching that something that someone else had written. And I thought for all its insanity, I was quite proud of it. So so I was able to to just put it in its put it in its place and accept it for what it is. Do you think that um, it helped that that was your first experience of of having of having something made you didn't have to go through endless redrafts with executives you didn't have to it didn't have to sit in a producer's shelf while you were waiting for you know in tv um, well I, I, the thing is i was writing other things at the time that yeah. weren't through that mm -hmm. so i was aware of all those things happening on all the other things um uh i think you know i kind of you can't help but dream something is going to be a kind of breakthrough moment 
uh, and it's, you know we had a great cast in many ways, and um, you know the you know and there was quite a burst of publicity attached to it at the time. I mean, I knew it wasn't a big budget movie that would that would be a massive release, um, <clears throat> and I think I I do feel in a way that critics didn't really know how to read it. Um, there was a yeah. there was a across and the Russell board, had that kind, effect. Yeah, there was, a, there was a kind of reading of it as like. Oh, I wish this had been a Merchant Ivory film about those poets. And you want to say, no, that isn't what it is. Don't don't say that's what it should have been. Because, you know, um, I remember I remember Timothy Spall when I visited the set out on one day. He's, you know, he said, mm, I'm having a bit of difficulty about kind of visualizing what kind of film this is. Mm. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I don't really know what kind of film it is, apart from the Ken Russell film. And I said, well. It's a hammer film, is what it is. It just happens to be about real people. And he was like, "Oh, oh, I get it now." <laughs> the, the first time, the first time I saw it, I had that reaction. I didn't really know what to expect, other than maybe a historical drama. But you know, it was. I mean, this was a time when I knew who you were, and I knew who Ken Russell was, and I couldn't make head or tail of it. The first time I saw it, the second time I went back and let it wash over me, and then I and then I got it. And it was even though I'm watching, and I, I found, found this when when going through things, you can watch exactly the same things, exactly the same images, exactly the same thing, but. If you're watching it a certain way and you re- and you get it, and it's and it's suddenly exactly the same thing. Even through just thinking through, ah, now I get it. Now I understand it. And I enjoy it much, much, much more from that. I think sometimes I was, um, lucky Sorry. enough to see it as a teenager. Um, yes. It was shown on um, the, um, I think it was shown on Movie Drome on um, BBC Two one night in oh, the early nineties. Yeah, um, yeah. I was, I, was in, I was in film school without Scott. Oh, I'm a big fan of Alex Cox. Um, but yeah, and, and, and they showed Movie Drome. They showed it on Movie Drome. So I think I was about 17, 18, thereabouts. Um, and so I was expecting a horror movie. And, and I, I, I didn't know what to expect either. And I didn't really get a horror movie either. I got something else. But I, I, it's one of those films that, oh, yeah, I've seen that. I remember that film. And it is, it is hugely memorable, I think. It's funny. It didn't, it, it slipped with. I mean, my in my naivety, I thought this will appeal to horror film fans and historical biopic fans, and rather alienate them both. What you find out <laughs> is that, yeah, neither of them actually. <laughs> but I think I, I think it's found its its um, kind of thin scene of supporters over the years. You know, so there are people that you know, in some ways, I can't remember who said. You know, I think I think that I think it. Well, I'm thinking of a different quote now, but I think Netflix said. We don't want to make things that everyone loves, but we want to make things that somebody think is, thinks is the most brilliant thing they've ever seen. And in a way, I think yeah. films that are kind of divisive and a bit kind of edgy or, or uh, you know, difficult to pin down are the ones that somebody out there thinks is absolutely brilliant. And I kind of just like the fact there are a few people out there that really get it. I mean, people like, I was amazed that Harlan Ellison, of all people, wrote a massive article about how much he liked it. He thought it was, you know, like, you know, it embodied the creative fire of, of, of poets. And, you know, he wow. went off on one on it. So if Harlan Ellison gets it, then that's good enough for me. Yeah, because let's be honest, Harlan <laughs> Ellison wasn't afraid to say what he hated, I think. <laughs> when, you, uh, when, you, when you were going through the writing process, how much of... of um, thinking of, of the, the rules or the feelings that, that people like Nigel Neal and the filmmakers that you've, that you've, that you've, that you've talked about, um, were you sort of 
thinking about them as he as he as he as he, as he went through? Are you trying to recreate what you said the the twelve year old? Um, now you're making me think whether whether I can't, I can't think specifically about about Nigel Neal apart from the generality that I said. Mm. Uh, you know, if you want to write horror, write horror, but try and make them good characters. Try and make it witty. Mm-hmm. Try and make it original. <laughs> you know, all the things. Those are the kind of lessons that I think I took into it. Really. Um, you, you know, try and not make it a B movie. Try and uh, put some contradiction in there. Um, get a, you know, have a theme that that matters. I mean, it, it actually, I think it took me a long time to realize um, what what theme is. You know, what's underlying the story. And mm. now it's almost a kind of the most important thing that I kind of carry with me when I'm trying to not think of ideas, but think of whether ideas kind of chime with me and which ones I want to focus a lot of time on. And it's kind of, I don't know, I don't even know if all writers are like this, maybe not, maybe not many are, but it's kind of like what, what makes you do it under what the story is, you know, what, what is this about that keeps you coming back to it, even though you can't figure it out? What is it that you want to kind of not necessarily get across, because get across means a message. And I don't think it's about a message, which is like lecturing someone, but it's it's actually the opposite of that. It's something you don't quite understand or you're ambivalent about, but you want to explore. But you don't explore it in writing a thesis or um, in an analytical way. You're you're kind of, you're setting out your parameters in, in a drama by having the polarities of different characters and that kind of thing. And, and where does this, where does, is this going to go? And I think in it, Nigel Leo kind of does that. Okay, here's the scientific character. Here's the here's the um, maverick character. Here's the authority figure. He's a big, big, big fan of authority figures. You know, I think probably he had his experience of authority figures, but they're very important in in his work. You know, but the but the idea of the, you know building up those blocks of the drama to actually to actually convey convey something is um is is part of what I think. Um, I kind of observed in what he was doing. I think we've reached that time when Ghost Watch is inevitably uh, okay. coming, 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 <laughs> coming, coming, coming towards us because um, you've written uh, before on uh, the influences of particularly sort of the of, of the Stone Tape uh, on, on yeah. Ghost Watch. When you first came uh, to conceive of Ghost Watch, if my memory serves, it was as a series, wasn't it? That's right. With and, um, with the the live bit as the as the as the final as the final. It episode. would have been late eighties, so it would have been kind of pre X Files. And right. um, I guess I was kind of yearning for something that was a kind of investigative supernatural thing. Um, that I always had before that, and always have since really. But it seemed to me that one way into a concept for an ongoing series about the supernatural might be a kind of TV crew, a bit like a, an investigative TV crew, like what used to be a program called World in Action, kind of foot in the door journalism. Like a world in action. Yeah. And, um, you know, the combination of that and, say, a, a modern ghost, uh, what, what in, in, even in the 80s was called a psychical researcher, and now called a paranormal, paranormalist, probably. Or, parapsychologist. Uh, or parapsychologist is the word. That's, that it's, it's completely changed. But in the 80s, it would have been a psychical researcher, which is a kind of Victorian term, I think. So the idea was put those two things together, which in itself is 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 even then quite Nigel Neely, which is the technology of the film crew and the um, the kind of spirituality or the unknown, sense of the unknown that goes with um, a kind of haunted house or something like that. And I know we, we 
we get this is almost a subculture of television now so we've got to put that to one side we can come to yeah, it like, sure, oh, yeah that's right. paranormal tv is a whole oh, yeah, whole yeah. industry now you know but at that nice. time i was thinking a thriller series a kind of serial in six parts and then it became uh shrunk down really to an idea of doing a, a one-off that, that i pitched as being you know could we do this live from the haunted house as if it is live from the haunted house you know and uh, the producer was very excited about that but um but can we you know can we do it <laughs> i said well let's try you know but to be honest i was thinking and without a word of a lie i was thinking can i pull this off as kind of thrillingly and as cleverly as nigel neil uh, did when he did uh, the stone tape I, I i really was thinking that at that point because that to me was the reference point of a, of a kind of tv ghost kind of event yes there was uh, the woman in black but that's the kind of film that happened to be on TV. I think the stone tape, because it was on Christmas night and it was it was more of an event, really. Um, and I also thought from, you know, remembering that quote of my dad saying the pubs had emptied because people mm-hmm. were tuning into TV. Mm-hmm. I think that was somewhere in the mix as well, because I was thinking, you know, can I bring the demon into the viewers' homes via the TV like Quatermass did, you know? <laughs> so it was this relationship that you talked about earlier on between the TV viewer and something supernatural, you know, or something um, uh, scary, you know, and that... that Within would, the intimate space so I was basically home, thinking, yeah. could, I, yeah. could I kind of empty the pubs? Not empty the pubs, but not literally empty the pubs, but could I get people talking on Sunday morning or on, or on Monday morning when they go to school, you know, which, which was always... Which all they the were. <laughs> Which all the things, all the things I remember watching in the '60s with my my pals, you know, over the weekend, you know, <clears throat> we kind of lived for chatting about films and TV in in the school break, you know. And I, I wouldn't it be fantastic if I was one of those things? I, you know, I could write one of those things that kids talk about. So that was that was part of it, really. Uh, I, I mean, what I, I made a little because <clears throat> I knew we were having this chat. I made a list of the reference points to uh, the Ghost Squad. Do you want me to uh, uh, just Please. quickly do a, do a kind of chat? I think, I think that's a safe bet we do, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just assume well, that we want this. Okay, okay. Well, let me count the, let me count the ways then. Um, uh, I think there's a parallel with the, uh, in the stone tape of uh, the scientists descending with the technology on a, on, a, on, a, on a place of potential kind of drama. And there's the hubris of these people that seem to be really confident right. with all their technology, they're wrapped up in their science and they're kind of, they're armored with their science really. And, you know, I've got that big uh, scanner truck with all the technology on it and spent a lot of time with fastidious kind of almost fetishistic detail of the technology, you know? Mm. And it's all serves in Ghostwatch to say, you know, about pride before a fall really, you know, as Arthur Miller said about tragedy, you know, is when the chickens come home to roost. And that's always the case in a ghost story. And people tuning in to something about ghosts, I think they, they don't need to be told that. You just tell them these people are super confident and they think this is going to happen. And they're joking about it. For God's sake, they're joking about it. And it's kind of like, <laughs> don't joke about these things, you know? So, <clears throat> so we've got protagonists dabbling in the unknown, really. And also what I think I've taken from Neil is a... A sense that with science, <clears throat> there's a kind of fear of what we might discover. There's scientific progress, but at what price? Are pagan are pagan forces more powerful than, you know, if you like, if, if you like, it's a clash between 
Apollonian forces and Dionysian forces in the old Greek theatre. So there's instinct versus reason. And I think I think I've often kind of thought of Neil's kind of science versus supernatural in those terms, really. And that's that's why for me it's deliciously representative of what we as humans are striving to understand. You know, it's part of us are pulled towards things that are unknown. Part of part of us are drawn towards things that we can work out with our intelligence. Getting back to Ghostwatch, um, it, Halloween was a, a given. Of course, there's a connection to Halloween 3 that Nigel Neal worked on. Um, in which it's like his best efforts to not let anyone know that. <laughs> in which the children are being affected by a TV commercial, yeah, indeed, yeah. aren't they? And in Ghostwatch, the actual program affects children mm-hmm. on the screen and at home because it was it was eventually cited in the British Journal of Psychiatry as uh, being the first program to cause PTSD in children. So it really did affect people. Do you know, the person I was talking to immediately before this call um, said, did you know that it was the first television program to cause PTSD in children? And it seems to have been the defining thing for a lot of people. Um, Do you think that was related to the fact that like John and myself, when we first saw it, we missed the vital bit at the start that said, and now a new drama, and thought that these things really were happening to Mike Smith, Craig Charles, and Michael Parkinson, as opposed to characters called Mike Smith, Craig Charles, and Michael Parkinson, played by Mike Smith, Craig Charles, um, and Michael Parkinson. Yes, we could. Uh, yes, I mean, basically, I totally agree with you. And there was, it's a very, um, Brought kind of discussion or, or question about how the BBC kind of couched the whole program. I mean, they got they were having kittens the day before. They they threatened to pull the entire program if I, my name wasn't on the beginning as writer. So the producer had to go in at the last minute and squeeze my name into the caption that already was uh, finalised <laughs> in order to say that it had been written. Uh, I mean, my my it's easy for me to say now. But my viewpoint was always, if you're going to tell a joke, and I don't believe it's a joke, but bear with me. Um, if you tell a joke, you don't give the punchline first and then tell the joke. So <laughs> you, know, you, you tell it in the mode it's meant to be told, and then you do whatever you like afterwards. So yes. my logic was play it straight, and then at the end, then you can reveal your cards and say, I hope you weren't worried by that. Let's have a half hour program or a 10 minute program discussing what you've just seen so that anyone that has been freaked out by it um, could be part of the discussion. And also you could, you know, t- take your foot off the accelerator of people getting worried about it. But of course, the BBC did not do that. They had a caption at the end and they had an announcer who apparently was it was their first job that night. And they oh, wow. and so it faded to black at the end and the announcer said, and now match of the day. Uh, they didn't even say, well, I hope you enjoyed that special screen one drama. I hope, you know, even if they'd said that, I'm convinced, you know, because I don't care what happens after the program. You've had the effect then. But they, there was no sense of damage limitation or even a sensible response to it at the end. Really. Um, but, the, but the remarkable thing was, um, uh, no disrespect to the way you reacted, there were a whole span of people that weren't bothered by it at all and have said to me, you know, I knew from the first 30 seconds it wasn't real. Oh, people people saying, you're not telling me people were taken in by that, are you? And 
you know, I, I think there's a thesis to be had really about uh, about the the range of reactions to the same thing. You know, um, I mean, I mean, the, the, the the denouement where you have Michael Parkinson going there and, and it, it enters it, it leaves it leaves like the verisimilitude of the outside broadcast and enters the absurdity of the horror movie yeah right at well, the there's, end there's a, there's a logical there's a time cut that w- doesn't work because it cuts forward in time and yeah and it's beautiful everyone, everyone's gone from the, the studio yeah. and you think how mm. does that happen that can't yeah and it's, it's beautiful and i love it um the way that it just suddenly segues from that that's the moment where it stops putting the shits up me right the moment oh, because, where it immediately because, went because it was a because it was essentially a jump cut. It was a jump cut, and yeah, I'm like, yeah, wait a minute, it's a, yeah. it's a time jump cut. Yeah, this is a drama. Oh, and he's he's lit from beneath and talking in a funny voice, and immediately it's like, okay, this was brilliant, and I I enjoyed it immensely. I, I, it just occurred to me because of that something that I didn't write down, but I think is a, is another inadvertent reference to um, Nigel Neal. Didn't one of the Quatermass TV broadcasts end with him talking to the audience yep was it quite a mess in the pit and they they didn't do that at the end of the film because they didn't think it would work um i believe but in, in any case what that's a kind of it's a kind of parallel there but one thing i wanted to do and was sorry i'm snickering because i know what your reaction will be to this was that i wanted i wanted um parkinson to say to the audience no he it's now in the it's now in the system. He's coming to your TV set. He's coming to your house. And then it cuts <laughs> to black. Um, and the producer said, no, you're not doing that. <laughs> and, and Ruth, the producer, had gone along with everything else. And she said, no way. So. Sorry, Stephen, that. no. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, forget it. Forget it. Forget no, it. we're not doing that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, once you've seen both the stone tape and Ghost Watch a couple of times and for people like ourselves and for the people that that listen to this podcast will be of, 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 of a similar ilk you will have studied them and often seen enjoying drawing 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 the parallels and having as Nigel Neal does in a lot of his dramas those sort of very grounded seemingly trivial but important for characterization points of whether you're you know you've got the the silly sequence with the um, the alien at the, at the start of when the, the student essentially running with the yeah there's, a, there's a, a, an absolute reference for that in Ghostwatch, which yeah. is Craig Charles wearing the plastic mask. It is, yeah, and he comes over uh, this as well. Yeah. But like, I remember the uh, there's a, a, like when it's Sarah Green introducing the um, the crew, and like one of them looks like Adrian Edmonds, and, yeah. and it's, you know, it's it's nothing. It doesn't matter, but it's it's it, it helps build. You have to care more yeah. because I'm assuming that was because you know the crew are going into danger, but you don't, and you need to, and you need to think of them as 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 as, as, as people. Um, but yeah, it's like now seeing this sort of build up of sort of interest and you know sort of getting across information info dumping in, in interesting ways Nigel is really is 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 really good it yeah. wasn't until i think the gothic season at the at the bfi back in about 20, 2013 which was the first time i'd seen ghost watch since broadcast and on the one hand i was like i was yeah, a cynical 35 year old rather than quite a naive 14 year old so i could spot not least of which i could you know i could spot four or five actors that i now knew from from other things but none of that mattered now i i could remember i could rem- I could i could remember the fear but it wasn't something else that then I realised 
was there a bit of like the Enfield haunting very much so something that was contemporary and something also that was very working class there's no you know back back into MR James there's you know yeah. you don't want gothic castles you want a, a world I, a world I can understand the the mother is is single there's no you know, there's they're already you're already if not that put me put this carefully they already elicit your sympathy in the even if that's a slightly patronising way, way, way to think about it, but there's vulnerability there that's implicit by a single mother and two daughters. Did you always write it as basically three girls? Yeah, three women? yeah, it was, it was, yeah. Actually, it wasn't so much. Um, it, I mean, the family dynamic wasn't so much based on uh, Enfield Poltergeist. Um, it was. I'd written a play about the Fox sisters and spiritualists. Mm -hmm. It was kind of based on, based on the two. The two sisters and and uh, and a kind of fictional kind of mother in that really, and and of course I I, I kind of wanted the absent father because I wanted the broken family and I wanted the TV crew to be a surrogate family. That was the whole point really. Is that people you know it's a bit like that old series that you know that I think was called the family, which it, the crew was invited fly on the wall you know was invited into um, you know to cover a family and they became they became part of the family you know um, uh, and I was kind of interested in in that both in the in the sense that victims of the haunting will 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 accept a, a researcher into their bosom of the family and and feel and from what i've read about these cases sometimes that they have to come up with the goods uh, hence the hence the hoaxing that may go with a real phenomenon that kind of thing so yeah and the, the addition of the tv cameras i thought was a great kind of like magnifying glass on the kids feeling they have to perform for the cameras yeah. So it was kind of playing with those kind of ideas psychologically and dramatically, really. And, um... and, and, and this is an early example of this. You sort of see this later on in mock, the mockumentary, pretty much as, as a thing, as a comedy and a drama thing, where you see people who want, want one of the tropes of the mockumentary is that you have characters who are signaled as being aware that there is a camera on them and are therefore talking away. Um, my, my particular favourite is actually a children's show called Roy, which is about Ireland's most first cartoon child. Uh, a, a couple had a boy and he had this unusual condition in that he's a cartoon. Fantastic. And and a it is fanta idea. It's a fantastic show. So you've got this cartoon character who's going to school and this documentary has been has been presumably following him since birth in the opening sequence and you have scenes where people are behaving really oddly around roy the cartoon kid um because there is a camera there and he is getting away with things because there is a camera there yeah um but the, the, that you see i think ghostwatch is a very very early example of of the use of that in drama Actually, I can't think of one before it. Can you, John? Where the characters are performing as if they're they're knowingly on camera. Yeah, I, 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 but it's a documentary. It's uh, really, oh, um, it's kind of ubiquitous on TV now, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, I mean, the level of kind of slight embarrassment in Ghostwatch seems so alien now compared to how easy people talk to camera nowadays with mobile phones and that kind of thing. Right? Uh, Thinking of, well, it's part of BBC Two Playhouse in 76. There was like a series of six plays that were one hour dramas. Uh, and there was, the first one was called uh, Muriel the Ghost Girl. I remember that, yeah. Yeah. 
That's uh, and that, Street Porter was in it, wasn't she? And that's the bit I want to come to. It was set. It's like in four sections. The first bit is a, a, a debunker goes to a, a seance and can't explain the appearance of, of a girl, and that's like a fifteen-minute segment. Then um, an American, a, a reporter in a tongue-in-cheek way, they film it like a noir, and an American looks like a, a, you know, a, a private dick um, and tries to investigate, and, and, and concludes the whole thing was made up. Uh, including the, the reporting of it as well. And then Janet Street Porter makes a sort of low budget documentary for the third act, debunking the debunker. And she's um, throughout it, it's, it's like, uh, and every, she's not, she's got a camera, but she's also talking to the camera, not her camera, our camera. And the camera sits on her shoulder, the camera moves around, the camera behaves undisciplined. Um, that sounds a little like a forerunner of found footage. Then. Yeah, it does. Except you know, this is going out as 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 intended, not as you know, not as not as randomly found. So um, that's that's the only thing I can think of off the top of my head. Rather put me this one, but um, the episode of the Mind Beyond where someone is acting and the people around them are acting in a certain way because they very definitely know know they're on camera. So I've chosen a probably a fifteen minute segment of a. Of a 1976 drama to, to illustrate the point, which is one of the most me things. Uh, I think I'll probably think of I'll probably think of a few more afterwards. It's on brand. Um, it is. It is. It, it, it is on brand. Um, I was th- well, I was trying to think what else similarities that that, that they had. Um, uh, there's the an thing- echo. There's an, a kind of echo, I think, in a way of the the kind of earworm TV jingle that was in um, that was in um, Halloween Three. And also, I think in in the John Mills Quatermass, there was the Ringstone Round Rhyme. Yeah. I think there's a parallel there with round my use of round, round and round the garden, garden like a teddy bear. Um, and I think I picked up on just how the way Neil would use something as banal as a nursery rhyme. Um, yeah, as, uh, because we all know they sometimes had sinister meanings or meanings lost in history. Yeah. But the repetition of them, I think. It's kind of like it it just somehow implies the kind of round of a pagan ring or a ritual or an incantation um mm-hmm. and i just without thinking about why i just kind of knew that that would be appropriate to this mm-hmm. um and the, but the biggest thing really in Ghostwatch, to be honest is the stone tape theory itself yeah i mean i know that i know that nigel neal in the way coined it but didn't necessarily come up with it um Oh, I can tell you a, a sidebar little story about that to do with drama that I adapted, Midwinter of the Spirit. Um, when we were filming at Hereford Cathedral in, sorry, I, I think I was visiting, no, wait a minute. It, no, I was visiting the set, which wasn't Hereford Cathedral, it was Chester. And we, I was talking to one of the guys that was in charge. I don't know what, he, he's some kind of chaplain. And he said that there were disembodied footsteps that you could hear in the cathedral and he said and i wrote this down word for word they say sandstone can retain the past like a tape recorder and i thought that sounds very nigel neil (laughs) for a cleric to tell me so i thought that would be worth telling you guys um and of course on ghostwatch dr pasco talks about the onion skin of peeling away the layers to what's underneath which is very much what happens in the stone tape Mm -hmm. um where they get Deep, what, deep yeah, when they when they wipe the the ghost of the exactly, serpent, yeah, what, what yeah, appears. Yeah. I think that's the most terrifying thing when you and you may miss it the first time, but no one's questioning what the ghost is reacting to. 
yeah. until until Jill hints and it sees yeah. what it's what it's reacting to, which chilled me in the way that the think as well, regardless of we don't know what happens at the end, which is sort of the point of the ghost watch. But you know, assuming Sarah Green dies in in the basement, um, would Sarah Green now haunt? Will Sarah Green screams now haunt now 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 haunt now? Which is an awful thing. Will Sarah Green screams? It's just the, the but you know. Do they, and, do and, they, you know, and you know what you're doing. Yeah. This is Sarah Green. This is you know the, the, the this is you know a, do the, a, do a the pillar screams, of establishment. Do the screams echo around the non-existent television centre with Jane Ash's screams? I wonder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because now I she's. Mean, that, the, that, you know that's very yeah. Nigel Neal. The fact that the broadcast uh, um, broadcasting houses is, is is now turning into flats, isn't it? Actually, I've just I've just now noticed uh, entirely frivolous uh, another um, uh, similarity between. Um, well, a link between Ghostwatch and, and the Stone Tape. They both contain guest characters uh, who appeared in John Pertwee's first Doctor Who story. There we go. Great oh. Random, one of the guys who, outside who's interviewed locally um, plays a character called Ransom in Spearhead from Space. Uh, and uh, the um, security guard in, um, in, in uh, Stone Tape is in the same story. Neil, Neil Wilson. There you go. Entirely frivolous, but there we go. I'm just you can take the boy out of Doctor Who fandom. <laughs> <laughs> However. However, yeah. <laughs> so when um, you later, um, and there's Ghostwatch gives you uh, a, a degree of notoriety that's there's a step on, presumably, from what you, uh, from, from what you had before. Uh, was there a, a greater freedom in sort of choosing projects that, that, that you wanted to do or at least getting to a, a further stage than you otherwise might have done had Ghostwatch not, not happened to be writing? Uh, no, not really. Oh, well, <laughs> not really. Uh, wow. It wasn't a case of, uh, it's, not a, it, it, it's never really a case of this, the, you know, the phone suddenly starting ringing. Um, you know, I've been fairly consistent in pitching things and trying to get commissions and meeting people, meeting producers. I mean, indeed, that's how Ghostwatch kind of came about. Um, so that didn't kind of stop, but it wasn't, I'm never really, I mean, one, one never knows as a writer how you're perceived or, or, you know, God forbid, how your career might be perceived, but you're, you're in the middle of it, so you can't see it. Actually, Steve, Steve Gallagher, you said that you've had on, on mm. the show, He's, he's, he's great about that. He says, when people look at your career, they think somehow it's a seamless kind of straight line of, you know, they did this, then they did that, then that happened, like it was some kind of plan. But it's never any kind of plan. You're just setting off these kind of like um, uh, little boats made out of paper and you, you put them in the stream of water that's going down the, down the street. Some of them end up in the gutter. Some of them keep going, you know. Um, and that's very, very much what it feels like when, when you're the one doing them. So some of them, some of them take off, and some of them, often ones that you think might be more deserving, don't take off. You know, that's one of the things you have to kind of uh, live with, really. And I think that that must have been the case, frustratingly, for Nigel Neal, especially towards the end, I think, because I'm sure he didn't give up on coming up with great ideas. I'm sure his ideas were great and imaginative, and yet somehow I think I hate to say, especially as as you become that terrible word, a kind of veteran writer. Increasingly these days, people are looking for the bright, young debut thing that they can cling to the shirt tails of and have a meteoric rise. Um, and um, and I think people like uh, Nigel Neal, um, who have been around for, for yonks and know what they're doing, 
I think there's something that executives actually don't like about those people because they get them in the room and they know that someone like Nigel Neal knows what they're up to. And then someone like Nigel Neal knows, you know, the paucity of the talent on the other side of the desk, you know? So they'd rather deal with people a lot younger and are more naive uh, that they can manipulate a lot more easily, really. That's my projection of what probably he's mm. felt towards, towards um, the end of his career. Um, when he did kind of Sharp and Kavanagh, I'm not saying they're not, you know, a good piece of work, um, but I certainly would have loved him to get one of his kind of imaginative science fiction projects off the ground um, to show yeah. he was really about. Um, I'm also surprised they never at any point adapted any things from like Tomato Cane, uh, his... This is the only time of writing, writing prose, but you know, there's some, there's some delicious stories there. But it's, no, quite difficult to, it's quite difficult to get anthology shows going um, at the best of times, although he did, you know, Beasts, which, which is very revered, but I know you've done another, a different program about it. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a one about yeah, I owe my entire career to Beasts pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, one nod also in Ghost Watch, I think, uh, worth mentioning is a sense of. Uh, as in the end of Quatermass in the Pit, there's a kind of a sense of the Lord of Misrule let loose at the end, a kind of sense of chaos and devastation, which yeah. I always loved at the end of Quatermass in the Pit, um, with um, you know just the actors kind of standing there in rubble, and you think surely that can't be the end, and then it says the end. You think bloody hell, that can't be the end. It's a very unlikely way to end, even a even a kind of it ends up quite dystopian, you know. Uh, yeah, the it's kind of ruined. Okay, we've won. We've beaten the Martians, but you don't feel that a great victory has been achieved. Which know? is why I think I mean it's it's a deliberate contrast I think to the earlier TV serial, which has essentially a, you know a coda with or an epilogue, or I should say, with with um, not quite, but Quatermass pretty much talking to camera uh, because it's done as like you know a, a press conference. So you can you, again, Neil's really at the forefront now using press conferences and rolling news to that's rapid, probably what rapidly I'm tell a story. The, yeah. the talking to camera, that's probably what Oh I'm yeah, that, that was Quatermass, not not Neil out of character. Yeah. That was up on general. But it's bring, but it's basically saying, you know, we're letting you know that this is in reading between the lines, this is a this is a fiction. And I know that you know racism isn't really due to the due to a random gene introduced by aliens, but the consequences of it are still as deadly and could still happen. Uh, and if and it's yeah, at least if nothing inspiring. Whereas you know the film ends with a devastated Barbara Shelley and um, and Andrew Keir in, a, in 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 the ruins of London, looking around, and then the credits roll. And it's yeah, it's it's uh, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's very bleak, very bleak final shot, you know. It's, 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 it's brutal. Um, it's an unfashionable way to end a film these days. You know, as, as films are moving towards getting longer and longer, um, you find that people just add about six different endings to movies. And I, I, I actually think that kind of everything lets rip and then it stops with people standing around in the rubble is fine by me. We need more movies like that rather than yeah, ones yeah. with like 17 yeah. different coders. And also you don't know necessarily what's what's going to happen there because that's not the purpose of the, of, of the story. The story is telling you that it's now the, this immediate threat is now over. What comes next? Well, I think it's a little yeah. like, um, you know, what, what would come next is the next story. is yeah. a different story. So that's the end mm -hmm. of this story yeah. or this part of the story. And in a way, it, it reflects Neil's idea about continuity of human history in a sense. That this kind of stage is, you know, 
And it's kind of, okay, there's that stage where we realize that about ourselves, you know. Um, uh, similarly, I remember having a, a conversation about when I saw um, the birds for the first time when it was shown on TV, I think in the 60s or 70s. And um, I thought the ending was perfect because they get out of the house. Sorry, spoiler. Um, and they get in the car and they drive away and the birds are still sitting on the house. And it's kind of like, so I remember someone saying to me, but that wasn't ending, was it? But similarly, it just came up the end. Yeah. But what were they going to follow that with? The, the you know the the army going in or you know jet also, fight. Also, you never you or... never find out why. Yeah, yeah. It, so it, it doesn't matter. It's like I don't know. Um, and you never find out if it's actually just limited to that house. No, or <laughs> well, uh, Benel's exterminating angel. You've never got um, yeah. the reasons you would the reasons you would leave the room it doesn't matter why you leave the room because yeah, that, yeah it does it does as well but um obviously as we've discussed in, in, in depth of the of, of the of the links between ghost watching and and, and and nigel Lewis, and specifically the, the stone tape but in the follow-up uh in terms of what i mean with um, the same producer when you did the two episodes of ghosts which is the same the producer with, with bond yeah. yeah um the first episode that the i'll I'll be watching you. Yeah, was I thought a brilliant example of what not that it directly references it, but as an example of also what you see with Neil, where the the phenomena happening isn't really what it's about. It's just a method for it to be broken. And that's I think when I first saw it, it was um, haunting as domestic abuse, almost. And that was yeah, you know, you could take the the scenario as silly, or you know, yeah. it, it doesn't matter. The fact is, an abusive husband in prison can still control his wife and you don't need really there can be there can be less obvious subtext than that in that you do just 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 being away doesn't mean you don't yeah. dominate dominate their life but having the physical the, the physical control and i thought that was that that was that was that was really chilling was that i mean is that again your philosophy that you will use um, yeah it is really um it, it is i always come back to this idea of um you know what is horror for horror yeah. meaning genre really of it a very wide kind of church that we're talking about um and I, I i think some people write horror simply for the effect of horror simply to be um to have the emotional effect and that's fine um and those can be completely satisfying but for me i think the um the genre exists i think to ideally to illuminate something so it has certain um aspects and certain kind of tropes um but it's to me, it's about illuminating, you know, human dilemmas or, and the, and the, if you like the supernatural, as we call it, um, isn't it really there to just be scary, just have a scary element, or even mainly to have a scary element. Not for me, anyway. It's always, it's always to, how can I put this? I what well, I'm thinking personally, but I always find when I'm doing a ghost story, for instance, that the, it's the person that it, it's really the the key to the person that sees the ghost or experiences the supernatural thing. So they're the person I'm interested in. The mechanics of the plot don't really interest me terribly much. It's about what the ghost represents, which is usually something missing or something that needs to be resolved in the person experiencing it. So in the case of, in the case of Afterlife, the series that I did um, about a psychologist and yeah. a medium who in a very Nigel, Nigel Neal way, are kind of complete opposites, the rational and irrational, right brain, brain left brain. Um, they, you know, 
I wanted the sense if they could just meet and get together and be honest with each other, they can heal each other's wounds. And I think that's this idea of kind of the supernatural being something that uh, is caused in order to resolve something in a character, I find, I find really kind of um, intriguing. I think, um, but op the opposites of, you know, rational and irrational impulses. Again, I think it's two sides of the coin in human nature, which is why uh, Neil was so fascinated. I, I think, I think also, Nigel Neil was often kind of pleading with humanity to adopt a trace of humility. I think he, in some stories, is trying to say to mankind to kind of curb its arrogance in putting itself in the center of the universe, that there are other things, you know, and the question about who is right, kind of spiritually or morally, certainly not the pig as an authority, you know. And sometimes he kind of questions whether, you know, the frail and craggy John Mills version of Quatermass doesn't seem a natural hero to kind of rally behind, but never, ne neither are the kind of ultra-spiritual cultish kind of hippies. So it's kind of like everyone is slightly wrong about what's going on, you know, and his confusion in a sense about who, who, who do we trust, you know, where do we, which group do we belong to is, is a very interesting thing, I think, in that greater mass things. And, and maybe what he's striving for is that maybe if these disparate viewpoints could conjoin in some way, we would get somewhere. And as long as they're in conflict, we won't kind of thing. Um, He'd never express it in such a banal way because he didn't need to because he was writing a drama about it. So he just needed to voice the situation as he saw it, really. And he, and, and he probably wouldn't analyse it in that way because he was quite happy just revealing it as a, as a kind of metaphor and a, and a landscape that he was exploring. You mentioned uh, some of the projects uh, Nigel O'Neill didn't get off the ground, as this seems a, a, a germane moment to, to mention Push the Dark Door. Oh yes, that yeah. was a strange thing that I, I, I'd forgotten about until Neil Snowden did his book about Nigel Neil that I contributed a, a, a piece for. And a, a director, I think his name was Terry Windsor, but I might have got that wrong, was a, had a production company in the 1980s and, and um, came to my, found me through my agent and said, we have an idea for a TV series created by Nigel Neil. Would you like to be one of the writers subsequently to write on it and I thought yes please I mean that would be what I've been waiting to do my whole life you know and I kind of jumped at the chance it was a kind of pre-x-files investigators of the supernatural a kind of team about a kind of aging millionaire I think who was facing death and wanted to know whether life after death was true or not quite a simple concept actually and um, the first plot I think was about a haunted tower block and I think the uh, kind of MacGuffin was that this particular flat that was haunted was at the exact spot on the top of a kind of burial mound that had been demolished. So this specific site was a kind of pagan site. So looking back at it, I can't remember any of, I think one of my stories was about a, a kind of possessed mask that was in the British Museum, something along those lines, I can't remember. But they, they all they wanted was kind of one page ideas. So I think that word came back from the great man that they were pretty awful, and I'm sure they were. Um, so it's probably just as well that it never happened. But it was, to his credit, years before the X-Files happened. So um, the idea of a kind of investigative supernatural series that Nigel Neal created is something sadly we'll never see, but would have been interesting. Did you ever meet him? I met him later on 
in a, um, there was a screening of, I think it was Quatermass 2. It was an event, event at um, Cheltenham Literary Festival. And I went Film there with the, the aforementioned uh, David Perry. We went up there because David had written a, a TV play called Rainy Day Women that was very influenced by Quatermass 2. You should get him on to talk about it, by the way. Should, you should um, yeah. I think he was very um, effusive in his praise of Nigel Neal. And, um, and how that had been the inspiration for Rainy Day Women. And, um, and we talked about it and we sat next to him and I got the chance to say, you know, what he meant to me. And, you know, he, Tom, as he was called to, by everyone, um, he got a standing ovation. I think he was quite kind of quietly kind of moved by that. So I'm not sure when that was, I think towards the end of his life really, but at least I got a chance to say to him what his work meant to me which was a which was a big thing he wasn't uh, he wasn't grumpy about fans in that respect then uh, he, as at a, that time on no. that day on that day at that hour no he wasn't i think perhaps you the fact you were a writer rather than just a random coming up to him in the street saying <laughs> I, I, I like i, I like quatermass maybe <laughs> maybe gave you a, a level yeah, of can you do some more yeah, yeah. <laughs> And let's not mention you hating my my, my idea for for, <laughs> for push the dark door. I think uh, on the day, the one time that Mark Gatiss uh, sat down with with, with Nigel, and he gave him a uh, a copy of League of Gentlemen, and I, I'm not sure what what what, what Nigel Neal made of the League of Gentlemen. Wanted to think. I'm not but, sure. What he, I wonder what he made of the live Great Man. Come to that. Yeah, I'm. I'm what did any of us make him make a drive? It was, it was, it's a, it's a really bold idea. And it's a really interesting idea. And it's just, but did it need to, did, did it need to have, it's, it's very interesting to watch back as a, as an experiment, no pun intended, as an, as an experiment, but I just, you're sort of left with going, what was, what was, what, I mean, just the fact that, I mean, when we had Mark on, he talked about um, the making of it, because I wanted to, like, you know, the idea of you, if you having to do with it, you know, and it's all in one room, just yeah. shot as live telly would be so, the fact you were making telly like you wouldn't like you would have made telly in the in the 50s and with you know with all the you having to you know do do like a week's or so worth rehearsal to get to get your marks down exactly and then and then do the walkthroughs in the in, in the space and the idea of having to you know like as mark pointed out i think there's a scene in the first episode of um, the quatermass experiment where a journalist has a a, a line and there's a close-up of the journalist, and you're like, "What was the point of that?" And the point of that is to get Set Linda from his last scene to, r- to run him round to get to get into position before the second before the cut to him to to reply. And that's and having to having to fit up all those was, was sort of fascinating. It's just a shame that you know, doing a yeah doing yeah, something it was, else. It was perfectly okay, but I did, I must admit it kind of um, I couldn't really see the reason for it. To be no, honest. no. And um, if you're if you're not, I mean, because they couldn't really the ending of just having. The light on uh, on Quatermass, rather than you seeing, and the hand. You seeing you seeing the creature. Yeah, even if it's just someone else's hand in close up with a model, uh, yeah, would be would be relevant. Mark said they had to get have runners, as in like I'll I'll get you to the to the safely, so we can run you safely into 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 into, into position. Because <laughs> yeah, because there's there's clearly because there's a bit where he um he runs and says, oh, the chopper's arrived," and then it cuts to. A bit with some people talking, and then and then you see Mark pulling like a um, a door open, and like you've just seen that they've they've had to like the the second bit. They've had to put a filler in to get him to get him around. Logistically, it was fascinating, but you know, probably more interesting than ultimate, ultimate, ultimately ultimately entertaining. It's a bit. It's a little like the recreations of them. 
Hancock's half hour and that kind of thing, really. I'm not, I yeah, I, I mean, I don't mind that so much because the, they're, well, they're missing. Uh, I mean, Gold remade um, the three dads, Missing Dad's Army episodes, but they remade them from camera scripts shot for shot. Um, and I can see they weren't doing that. Where they've done some of the missing Hancocks with... with um, well, that's okay. in, wasn't it? Oh, Kevin McNally, the most recent ones. Who's, it, who's in your What did they do the Likely Lads with Anton Deck? Mm. Sorry. <laughs> well, if you're going to do the Likely Lads... Back. You've left the room. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, God. Um, but the, the, the Hancock ones, it was just weird because they were done like in a, on a, in, a, in a studio, but with just like a, mock, like a mocked up set, like we're watching a Gus Van, Van Trier, sorry, a Lars Van Trier film, um, but it, um, which just doesn't go with the sort of dull domesticity of, of you know, where we, we're meant to be in Surrey, I think, or, or East Cheam as a, as a major place. But I, but I, I get the points of those because they're remaking a missing episode, something you can't, something you yeah. can't, you can't see. The Quater Experiment, I know you can't see two, two thirds of it, but uh, something exists and, you know, enough stuff exists. It just seems a bit, if you're going to do it, could you have done just a proper remake? Um, and again, I think another thing that doesn't really work is Quatermass, and I may be in the minority there, but if there are any um, issues with making new Quatermass, or with, uh, Quatermass works best in its time, which is a po which is the, the, the post-war utopia or the rhythm to the there, and when space travel wasn't really known, so you're you're dealing with the frontier, the, the unknown frontier of something you can't. Didn't um, didn't Nigel Neal want to want to write one about that uh, predated it? Yeah, he wanted to do a, a Second World War one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that and, and that would, Germany. That would yeah. be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, that would be very good. Well. When they talk about talk about making modern Quatermass, you don't get that sense that that's not what the British rocket group would have would have been. But you can't recreate the feeling in 1953 of not knowing what was what was what was in space because now you do it's like if you try, they've never really got around to making lovecraft at the mountains of madness because yeah. the antarctic's been mapped you know i always <laughs> i always think the same thing i was going to say about the about the arctic uh, or antarctic actually i always think when where, about poe's um uh, narrative of arthur gordon, arthur Pym, gordon Pym, with, yeah. uh, i always think at the time when he wrote that with was by 1840 was it mm. that would have been like 2001 a space odyssey mm. literally it would have been as obscure and as terrifying as mm. uh, as as space travel um and it's very difficult for us to think that isn't it about the about yeah. things on yeah. 150 years ago i mean the idea of the idea of um africa for instance is, is, uh, is completely different now than it was 100 years ago i remember even when right. i was a little kid a really small thing speaking of poe but but um, a link here, wait for it, orangutan. Right. Um, <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, it was still quite a seldom seen mysterious creature that they had only just kind of found and analyzed. And it was very much wrapped up in the, the mystique or the legend of the old man of the forest. And mm. I remember that quite, I remember that quite clearly at almost a 40 and times kind of discovery. <laughs> and <clears throat> uh, that it was, you know, in the back of beyond and, you know, uh, seldom seen by Westerners and that kind of thing. And um, right. you know, compare that to now how we how we yeah. how we um, visualize and know the orangutan as a species. Mm. It's completely different. And that's I'm talking about this. Uh, you know, 50 years later. Mm. Um, it's it's fascinating. Anyway, we're we're going. It's a video. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, and Howard, is there anything you want to add that we haven't covered yet? Um, I would. I I just partly, partly I wanted to sort of suggest perhaps or, or observe that 
you can sort of see the Neil influence in some of the the other stuff you've written that you haven't mentioned, like The Awakening feels a bit mm. Woman in Black right. and stuff yeah. like that. Oh, yeah, that's true, yeah. That, um, that audience feel to it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's got that kind of, yeah. that the Edwardian scientific romance kind of thing going on along with the horror, the ghostly nature of the thing. Um, I, was, I was actually sort of wondering about how it feels now. You're talking about being a veteran writer and knowing that you've actually got your own... Um, own legacy in a lot of ways you've, you've sort of moved on and inspired other people <laughs> well yeah i mean i i was i was fortunate enough to interview um two of the crew who made host on saturday and they um and jed shepherd one of the writers um mentioned um you've seen host with, by the way Stephen. sorry Stephen, yeah. have you seen host yes yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. Sorry. yeah sorry. no, I, I think I did. Yeah. Did did you not sort of say something nice about it on Twitter? I think I did. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Um, but yeah, Jed Shepard basically said that the thing is largely a love letter to Ghostwatch. Um, it's, it's funny actually because um, I did an interview with him uh, probably two years ago, and we talked about much the same as we're talking about. <laughs> and, yeah. And um, at the end, he said so. Um, what would you do if you were making Ghostwatch now? You know, it's often a question that I get asked. And I said, well, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I wouldn't do it now. It's of its time. You know, a bit like you said about Quatermass. Mm. <coughs> yeah. It's of its time. And it's so much of its time. I don't think you could do it now for all sorts of reasons of the internet and that kind of thing. But yeah. uh, you couldn't technically do it now for all sorts of reasons. They wouldn't do it now, which is the other reason. And thirdly, yeah. why would you do it now? Uh, and I said... To Nostalgia. Jen, yeah. <laughs> Well, I said to Jed, um, you know, it's not up to me to do it, to do it anyway. I said, the, the, the thing I'm interested in is something that someone else does that, that surprises and scares me in the same way that hopefully I su surprised and scared people with Ghostwatch. Um, and, you know, I was influenced, you know, by the stone tape. I kind of did want to replicate it, but there were echoes of it in Ghostwatch. And so, and so the baton gets passed on in a funny kind of way because he, he said... Yeah. He took up my challenge and he said, oh, because we're trying to write something at the moment. So maybe it will be me. And I thought, no more of it. And then a year later or six months later, they, host. Made, they yeah. made host. And, um, you know, it, it, was a, it was a kind of win-win. I, I love the fact they made that. I'd completely forgotten he said that in the interview. But he said, yeah, I took that as a challenge. So we... So he we did actually it, tell yeah. me that on Saturday. <laughs> yeah. That, that he so thought maybe it should be me. Right. Yeah, I, I absolutely love the idea that you know, there's this continuity through genre. And yeah, and there's a lineage. The same tape um, influenced me, and then I did something that influenced someone else. You know, people uh, people come up to me. The most thrilling <coughs> thing is when people come up after screenings, and remarkably, it kind of even though it's not live and there's no illusion of it being live at, at screening, uh, people still enjoy it and still love it. But people come up and say, oh, I've got a bone to pick with you, as my nan used to say. Um, you know, I was awake for two weeks after this with the light on, you know, but but I did think it was brilliant and also yeah. it made me interested in horror films and now I'm making a horror film. And that's just an amazing feeling to have done that. So you pass on something to somebody else and and like I say, that the kind of accolade in a way that really is really gratifying is, is you know, the kind of um, praise that something like Host gets and the generosity of the people making that hearkening back, you know, to... Um, to ghost watch, you know, I take that as a real compliment. And uh, I'm sure there will be people that see host and so on, they take it on. And um, that's the osmosis of how the genre changes, I think, really. Mm. 
as well. And the um, the live thing still can't work. I mean, there were people that were taken in by the the inside number nine Halloween. Oh yeah, uh, Halloween yes, episode. indeed. Um, I mean, the more. But the, the funny the thing about that is that I know um, Rishia Smith because okay. uh, I was right. lucky enough to do a, a, a kind of a play at the uh, Bush with him and Jim Broadbent. I mean, amazing thing to do oh yes um, yes you did. and yeah. uh it was most remarkable kind of off the cuff thing but it, it was absolutely great because i couldn't wait to say to him i myself like league of gentlemen he couldn't wait to tell me how much he loved ghost work so it was a real kind of lovely moment <laughs> in, a, in a good way but uh, but when i heard about this live halloween thing from inside number nine i texted him and i said could you please i'd be really thrilled if you could put in a little just a little kind of homage to Ghost Works, just for me. And he said, I think you'll be pleased. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was pleased because it was all a homage to Ghost Yeah, that was the... <laughs> I, I texted him to say it was, uh, I loved it. And he said, yeah, it was all ready for you, he said, which I thought was really... That's, that's a wonderful thing to happen. Yeah. Our thanks to Stephen for his time. I particularly enjoyed his, his comments on how establishment figures in the TV industry don't like doing imaginative fiction because they'd rather screw up social realist drama because they can get away with it uh, easier. I found, I, found that, I found that interesting. I hope you've been enjoying these episodes. And if you have an opportunity, we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a rating and a comment on iTunes. It really, really does help with our visibility and to find new listeners. Thanks very much for listening. And we'll see you next time. Yeah.